Sequel Quest, episode 85, the A-Team movie sequel. Welcome to Sequel Quest, the podcast where Adam, Jeff, and Jeremy invite you on a cinematic adventure to create prequels, sequels, and reboots to your favorite movie franchises. Joined by special guests along the way, Sequel Quest is go for launch. So let the adventure begin now. In 2015, a crack podcasting unit began pitching crazy ideas for films they couldn't create. These men promptly began recording these fake movie pitches for maximum ridiculousness, hoping to get noticed by the Los Angeles underground film scene. Today, still committed to creating prequels, sequels, and reboots, they survive as podcasters of fortune. If you have a sequel idea, if no one else cares to listen, and if you can find them, maybe you can inspire the SQ team. Listen up, fools! Tonight, we are bringing you explosive podcasting action, but to accomplish this mission, I had to assemble a team of highly skilled individuals. First up, the man who has repeatedly told me he ain't getting on no plane, it's B.H. Campbellsmith. B.H. stands for Big Huge, a.k.a. Jeff. Thank, thank you. Hi. And released from a mental hospital just in time to pilot this show directly into your ear holes, I'm Howlin' Mad Adam. And, you know, Jeremy loves it when a podcast comes together, but he's been taken hostage by the insurgent military of a South American dictatorship, so it's up to us to save today. But we can't do it alone. So, charming his way onto the team tonight. He's no Dirk Benedict, but he's definitely a face man. Returning to the show on loan from the Nerd Lunch, Down the Rabbit Hole, and Dragonfly Ripple podcast, it's Carlin Travel. How you doing, CT? Hey, so I'm no Dirk Benedict. Does that make me Tim Dunnigan? <laughs> we got to get into that. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> oh, there's some details. But yes, in case you haven't guessed, tonight we are talking about the A-Team from 2010, starring Liam Neeson, Bradley Cooper, Charlotte Copley, Quinton Rampage Jackson, Patrick Wilson, Jessica Biel, and directed by Joe Carnahan. Uh, now... The reason CT is joining us is that he is a super fan of this movie, uh, and uh, we, we're going to get into those details. Jeff, you are a super fan of this movie? <laughs> I didn't know. I thought that was a contradiction. Now, that's an actual thing that there were people <laughs> who saw that paid money for this movie? Well, well, well done. Well done. Unfortunately, not enough. Otherwise, we wouldn't be doing this episode right that's now. That's a good we point. We would be on our seventh sequel. <laughs> oh. But the truth is, we can't talk about the movie without getting into the action-adventure TV show that ran for five seasons from, what, 1983 to 1987 on NBC? Yep. So, CT, were you watching the show during its original run? For a good chunk of it. I, I think when it debuted, like, just just the first couple seasons, I, I missed it. I wasn't I wasn't watching it, but I had, I had friends who watched it. I was aware of it, certainly because of the merchandise. So when it debuted, I lived in the Eastern time zone, so it was uh, kind of kind of past my bedtime, actually, when, for the age I was. We moved to the Central time zone in the midst of this series, and then I, I was all in. I was like, okay, now i got to watch it, and I love this show. Until that last season, then I didn't love it as much. And even that, I feel like, initially had some potential, and they just didn't carry it through. How about you, Jeff? Were you an A-team watcher? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm too young to have watched it when it's first run because, again, I was like five when it came on. So, uh, but definitely the reruns. I mean, the, the, it was the one that I feel like A Team's reruns were always at like three o'clock. So by the time I got home from work or from school, I would only catch the last like 10 minutes of it. So it was always that dream of like, if someday I can get home in time to watch all of A Team, I, I would end up. <laughs> I'd get to watch like Quantum Leap and I'd get to watch MacGyver and whatever, which was great, but it was just like A Team was the dream because and and to be perfectly honest, like the reason I'm so harsh on the movie is because of my love for the TV show. The TV show is everything the best of 1980s television, and then you know to have a movie that just yeah, it's almost impossible to capture that I think in a in a movie form. Yeah, we're, we're going to get into that uh, for sure. Now, for me personally, I knew the A-Team as a cultural touchstone. Uh, I, I also did not watch the, the show during its original run. I watched it in syndication in like the early 90s. But I specifically remember catching the episodes where Hulk Hogan was a guest star. <laughs> so that was a big deal to me, you know, because Mr. T also was front and center in the promotion of the original WrestleMania. He was very involved. So there was a lot of synergy between the WWF and the A-Team, you know. There's a very um, gimmicky uh, fourth season. They started having um, they, like Hulk Hogan's in a couple episodes. The Fridge is in one of those. Hmm. You got you got Boy George is in an episode. <laughs> Rick James is in an episode. So that fourth season was like, let's get in guest stars. Uh, wow. Wheel of Fortune is a Wheel of Fortune episode, which is actually really funny. Uh, is that yeah? The fourth season was like, we're out of ideas. Let's just do gimmicks. Yeah, well, and I find it so interesting. Uh, you know, doing a little research. You know, Stephen J. Is it Canel? Canel is Canel. You know, he created the show, but after he was fired from ABC because he hadn't produced a hit show for that network, they kept trying. So then, uh, you know, the, the great Brandon Tartikoff over at NBC basically gave him this idea for an action show. You kind of talk about Dirty Dozen, giving him a lot of inspiration. And then there you go. He's off to the races with a major hit. Kind of like you said, CT, maybe for three and a half seasons. I don't know. Uh, you know, before, I guess the fourth season star-studded at least. But I think it's interesting to look back also at where the actors that make up the A-Team came from. Because they are a very motley crew when you consider their pedigree in television and film. Like, if you think about George Pappard before the A-Team, what do you know him from? Breakfast at Tiffany's is probably one of his bigger roles. Right. Uh, and then he was in, like, a, some sort of detective TV series called Banachek in the late 70s, which is a weird, kind of a weird show to watch. Did he star in that, or was he, like, a co-star? He he was the star. He was Banachek. Oh, okay. Because I've heard of the show, but I've never seen it. And then, you know, you got Dirk Benedict, who was on Battlestar Galactica. Who almost wasn't in the show. Tim Dunnigan was in the pilot as face, and Dirk Benedict was almost not in the show. Uh, I guess they wanted him, but then for some reason, somebody along the way said, no, he can't be in it. T Dunnigan was not loved in the pilot, and uh, they brought Benedict in. Yeah, he didn't have nearly as much charisma. He said, someday we'll need Captain Power. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you got Dwight Schultz, but when you look at his IMDb, he was just like barely getting started as a character actor on TV. He was doing like chips and shows like that, kind of one-off performances. And of course, after the show, Star Trek fans love him. But we all know 
also that the you know the real breakout star of all this was Mr. T. So, CT, for you, as you were getting into it, did you find Mr. T first from the A-Team, or did you find Mr. T from Rocky Three? Also um, featuring Hulk Hogan, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I, uh, I was aware of Mr. T from the A-Team. I actually didn't watch the Rocky movies for quite some time. I knew, I knew of them, but didn't watch them for years. Uh, so I was more aware of Mr. T from the A-Team, though he still wasn't my favorite. I was always a Hannibal fan, even growing oh, up. interesting. Okay. How about for you, Jeff? Well, I'd say, like, awareness-wise, like, as a kid, I remember, what was it, Mr. T and the something the All-Stars? But yeah, whatever, the, the, the Saturday the morning team. cartoon. Yeah. Yeah. And it, to be perfectly honest, for a while, I didn't put the two and two together to figure out that that actually was the same character that I kind of got to know that. Because Mr. T just became like the, you know, ultimate, not even action hero. I don't even know what you would call him. He was just the icon that was around. Well, he was like tough guy, but kids loved him. Like he was like scary why? to adults, but kids were not why afraid. We liked him. Well, it's funny because I'm the same way where Mr. T, even as a kid, like Mr. T was never my favorite character. I feel like Face would have been my favorite as a kid. But yeah, Hannibal, Hannibal's still the best one, though. Wow, interesting. Okay, yeah, because for me, Mr. T, I would say, was really the the main person you tuned in to see. And I also, big fan of the cartoon show with his young gymnastics team cohorts. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> one of, I think that was actually Phil Lamar's first job, if anybody knows uh-huh. the great Phil Lamar. But uh, also, I recently went uh, on a very fruitful uh, garage sailing, yard sailing adventure, and I managed to pick up not one, but two Mr. T gym bags inspired <laughs> by that cartoon <laughs> from 1984. It was awesome. Why do you need two of them? I, they were There were two available, and I wasn't walking out of there with just one. <laughs> Oh, they're beautiful, oh, beautiful. They got the cartoon Mr. T on there. But and that's what's so funny is like, you know, after the A-Team, he really became a marketing icon. That was kind of his thing. Like, you know, he had the cartoon. He had his cereal, of course. And then next thing I know, it's the 90s. And he's doing 1-800-Collect commercials telling us to cut the jibba jabber. And I thought he disappeared after 1-800-COLLECT, but apparently he still does commercials, he does reality TV. He was on Dancing with the Stars, and he danced, he came out and danced to the uh, A-Team theme song. Wow. He did not win on the spot, I don't know. (laughs) I do. No (laughs) soul. I I, in my mind imagined that it was actually like some sort of plot of the A-Team, like it was, like that was actually (laughs) a who had to he had to go out there as a part of the plan to save the dancer or something. I don't know. Yeah. Well, what's crazy too is he, like I said, his voiceover work with, he's done the cloudy with a chance of meatball movies. I don't know if you guys have watched those, but my kids love him. And yeah. I had no idea that he was the goofy cop character. Cause that's like a legitimately funny performance with levels. Like it's good. But CT, you made reference also to the merchandising because this show, you know, had lots of violence. It was famous for, you know, non-lethal violence, right? Yes. <laughs> Cars are being blown up. You know, you're getting people shot with machine guns or shot at with machine guns, but nobody would die. There was no blood or, you know, at least you didn't get confirmation. Everybody was dead. They just fell down. <laughs> very few. There were some deaths, but they're very few and far between on the show. Yeah. And so, but it was kind of, 
wasn't it targeted sort of by like parents groups and things just because it was essentially marketed to kids i mean it was it was almost like considered a family show in a way yeah it debuted after the super bowl you know it was really yeah targeted prime time definitely definitely uh, kids were, were jumping on it there were action figures and i have an a-team lunchbox and there was the die cast toys and rack toys and all that stuff i mean there was no shortage of uh, all that merchandising yeah and, and i was went on ebay just to kind of do a little bit of a, a deep dive because i was curious to kind of see okay what is out there what did they produce and you know like you said you know action figures whatever there might be but one of the craziest things I found was a hilariously cheap A-team dress-up kit, okay? Oh. And so, like, each member of the team, there was a specific item in there associated with them. Like, Hannibal's disguise kit was a pair of Groucho glasses. <laughs> BA had a canteen for some reason. And then for the female member of the team, Amy, they included a quote, real working flashlight. Oh. <laughs> uh, wow. Which I, I have a few more I want to mention, but let's talk also about Amy. <laughs> because you you have this character who is kind of like the audience introduction to the A team, right? She was front and center in the marketing as any other star she, yeah, on the she's show. on my lunchbox she's uh she's right there on my lunch well mr tba is huge on the lunchbox he takes up half of it and then the rest of the cast are uh, pretty pretty prominent on the other half of it including it's definitely a guy's show you know and so to have this this woman in the middle of it it, it always felt kind of odd just it you know in concept it's good but at the same time, if you think of the A-Team, nobody thinks of five characters. They think of four characters. Well, she was, a, yeah, she was only really in the first season and a half. And, but did they bring in another female And actor? then they yeah. tried to replace her, and Tanya was the, was the second report, you know, the reporter character. And Tanya was very, very short-lived, like just part of the second season. And then, um, like, uh, one episode or two episodes in the third season, she, she was kind of in and out. And, and then Tia uh, Carrera came up in like the fourth or fifth season, didn't she? Tia Carrera is only in one episode. She was supposed to oh. join the cast and then was supposed to be in the fifth season. And, and something happened. And she she didn't wind up joining the cast. Yeah, because I knew she was set up. I was like, Cassandra from Wade's World? That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Philando. Okay. So, yeah. So, I just thought it's important to mention these female characters that just, for whatever reason, didn't stay in the mix. Really, really weren't remembered. Well, there was... Just for the, we'll just to peel back the curtain. There's a lot of misogyny going on in the background. George Papard did not want women on the cast, so he basically drove both of them away. Okay, <laughs> creating the friction. Yes, there's a lot of friction. If you if you read up about the behind the scenes, there's a lot of friction, and most of it's Papard. Hmm. Oh, okay, <laughs> a lot of prickly character. I yeah, I can't say I'm surprised, disappointed, but I can't say surprised. But there was all sorts of stuff. Like I said, it's just it's interesting that such like uh, an action-packed show because it, like later on, I guess things got a little more serious. Stuff like Miami Vice, and it's like kids shouldn't be watching that. But this show was a little more tame. But at the same time. I think it's funny because aside from, say, like, you know, Topps trading cards or party supplies or a B.A. Baracus AM radio, there were branded boomerangs. 
boomerangs? Like, what? 18 <laughs> boomerangs? And probably the funniest of all, it's an 18 grenade toss kids game. So it's like a beanbag toss, but with hand grenades. <laughs> it is amazing. So it's just like, they, they really tried to keep at least with the theme. You know, I feel, I feel like if nothing else, they didn't miss out on what was possible. Jeff, did you ever go so far in your dream of being an A-team uh, watcher <laughs> to find anything in your toy box? No, I mean, no. Yeah, now I know I had uh, a, an A-team stamp, you know, just a little ink stamp that was BA's head. So I had a Mr. T stamp and then I had a Mr. T kite. But I think also the Mr. T kite was for the cartoon and not for the A-team proper. Um, but so... The other thing, and CT, I know you have a copy of the novelization, right? Or, or of all the novelizations, right? There were three of them? There's uh, six six of them. Oh, wow. Have... Okay. I only have the first one. It has a little uh, page in the back that's promoting the other two in the series. So I guess they, it must have been so popular they had to add more. Yeah. Well, there may be. Actually, that's a good point. I have one through six. There might be more than that, but I have the first six, yeah. I don't, I don't, have you cracked the spine on any of them? Um, I have not read them. No, if that's what you're asking. The spines might be cracked. They were purchased used, but I, oh, okay. I... <laughs> <laughs> you're not responsible for that. Yes. In uh, honor of your co-host on Nerd Lunch Packs, I decided I'm going to read this novelization just so I'm aware of it. And, it, you know, it's a pretty faithful retelling of the pilot episode, but it also brought out to me some of, like, you know, most 80s television has this, especially that which has, like, a lot of machismo, but there's some troubling things that are a part of this, like Hannibal's Mr. Lee, stereotypical Asian character. That's kind of go back to Breakfast at Tiffany's, like the uh, <laughs> Mickey Rooney yeah. Yeah. Uh, Asian stereotype, and Murdoch talking in a bad Mexican accent all the time, you know. And then uh, there was one, you know, particular scene where two characters are teasing each other about coming out of the closet. I don't know. Was that it? Was that in the pilot? Did that get filmed? I don't recall that being there, but... Yeah, uh... that must have been added by the author. <laughs> or original script. But this is the other thing I was going to ask about Face, getting back to the original Face Man. Because he's the only character, at least in the book, that gets a real backstory. Where it talks about him being like a street kid who was raised by a Catholic priest and all that. Was that part of his mythos on the show? Yeah, he's an orphan, um... Now, so I was going to ask, because there's a scene in the pilot where he meets up, and I guess I thought it was his dad, but maybe it's like the priest who raised him or something right. like that. Yeah, in the um, hospital. So, the, okay, yeah, that, is that in the is that in the, uh, novelization? It is, yeah. Okay, okay. so that, that was my question to you, because it's been a while since I watched the pilot, so I was like, okay, so yeah, so that makes sense then. So, a juggernaut of ratings... Uh, you know, everybody loved it. There was even a live action stunt show at Universal Studios in 1985, you know, quickly replaced by the Miami Vice stunt show. Yeah, I remember that. You do? Oh, yeah. I remember the A-Team one. They, they used to have, well, because even after they canceled that, they still had the A-Team van there on display for years. Yeah, I remember seeing the van for sure. And you know what was actually pretty fun? I'll just mention this as we as we close out on the show. Um, so I, I'm a big fan of RetroCon. Anybody who loves old TV, old uh, toys, anything, you got to find yourself at RetroCon every year. But last year was the the big guests that they had 
were, you know, Face Man and Murdoch. So you had uh, Dirk Benedict and he was there, uh, you know, looking good. And Dwight Schultz was there as well. And uh, <laughs> I was not like a diehard A-Team fan, but my cousin's family, who I invited to come with me, were. Like their kids, you know, were like 10 and 12 and they had just watched all the seasons on Netflix. So they were way into the A-Team. So they got their picture in front of a replica van, you know, with Murdoch and with Face. And so they were very excited. Yeah, I I'm curious, do you know, do you hear, CT, ever, that Mr. T is out there? I've seen, like, signed boxes of cereal and stuff, but does he go to any cons that you're aware of? I don't know if he... I, I saw him at a con years ago, but I don't know if he's doing it anymore. Okay. So we, we talk about the show, and the show is gone, and apparently for years and years, they were trying to get a movie made, like, going all the way back to the 90s. They're like, we could do this, we could make an A-Team film... And it just never worked out until finally we get, you know, the announcement in 2009, I think, is when stuff started leaking, right? When they had, like, set photos of everybody filming in Canada, of all places. And what what was your first impression when you heard there was going to be an A-Team movie, CT? Uh, I was very worried, actually. Um, and even though I... I... Even though I like Liam Neeson, that doesn't necessarily save a movie for me. Phantom Menace. Mm. Um, <laughs> I like Bradley Cooper. I and I, at that point I didn't know who the other guys were. Uh, Jessica Biel didn't. You know, I didn't. I knew who she was, but she didn't save it for me or anything. So I was just very worried um, about it. Um, I being such a fan of the show, I, there, there there are so many. Um, TV shows that are turned into movies where they start kind of doing like, let's make fun of it. Like Starsky and Hutch comes to mind where it's like, this is a serious show and now you're poking fun at it. Um, or Chips has done that more recently or 21 Jump Street more recently. And uh, sometimes it works. Sometimes it's fine. And this time it's like, I didn't want that to be the case here. So I was just, I was nervous about that. I had read a leaked script treatment from before where they had actually made face the villain. Uh, of the piece so i so knowing that was a possibility i was worried about that so i was very trepidatious about the whole thing and jeff again you said you were you were devoted fan as well was your sentiment similar yeah i mean like not devoted fan per se other than just the i certainly appreciated the the show so yeah i i felt that same way and it's that frustrating thing i mean it's gotten more frustrating since then where it's just like it feels like hollywood is incapable of coming up with original ideas so they just want to rehash creative ones from the 80s and yeah very very rarely does it seem like that turns out successful yeah well yeah see for me like i remember hearing about it but i had no real interest in it i just thought the casting was strange because Liam Neeson, for me, I've never been a fan of his American accent. Uh, going back to Darkman and everything else, like it, it, he just never quite Dark has Man. it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I don't know why I'm still surprised at your movie rep. <laughs> well, you know, he was fine in Darkman, but, you know, like, oh. <laughs> uh, okay, I could go all the way back to High Spirits with Steve Gutenberg. No, see, this is not getting better, man. <laughs> But, but but also the one that I was interested in that actually fascinated me was Charlotte Copley because I loved District 9. Jeff, I know you're a fan too, right? 
Yeah, well, Judy's an even bigger fan than my wife, but yeah. Yeah, and so like, him as Murdoch, I was like, that's really interesting. I don't know where he's going to take it, but he, I, I just, I never thought he would work again, except in a Neil Blomkamp film. I thought that he would be <laughs> his guy that he just, you know, cast and everything. And then here he was in a major blockbuster or, you know, supposed blockbuster. Uh, and so I only saw the first 15 minutes of the movie at my dentist's office. Um, she is an aspiring screenwriter herself, Dr. Bot, you rock. But she always would let me pick a DVD to put on during my cleanings. You know, so one time I saw the A-Team, I was like, oh, I gotta throw this on. But like I said, I only saw the first 15 minutes, and then I was like, eh, it's all right, but I don't know if I'm gonna go back to it until this show came up and CT's request that we give it a chance, bring it back into the spotlight. And I have to say, I've watched this movie three times in the last two weeks i watched theatrical and the extended cut then the theatrical with the director's commentary and you know what i'm still not tired of it the Mm. actors in this movie are charming the action is fun it's great it is a fun fun movie sorry jeff it's it is so good (laughs) see for me it's like the problem that i have with it is that i i saw it and i enjoyed it but it was just like Meh. Like it, there was just nothing. Because if you ask me, I think all of the characters that they cast, like all the actors they cast, Liam Neeson doesn't work for me. He's no Hannibal, and that was that. Especially because he's my favorite character. That one was tough. Bradley Cooper, great face. You, you know, again, Murdoch, an interesting choice. Even Rampage. I thought Rampage was pretty good. My problem was personally, I felt like the four of them had almost zero chemistry. I didn't feel like that charm that the first one had where it was just like, I feel like this is almost like a group of friends. Even the banter between BH and Murdoch, like I love that in the original show. And at least for me, that's what didn't work in this movie. Wow. So I have to disagree because I think that's the strongest point of the film. That's what you go into it. You're like, wow, these guys really work together. The chemistry is great. And Jeff, I would recommend if you ever decide to give it a chance again, the extended cut has so much more character development and time for you to see them interacting together where you really feel it, especially like the first meeting between Hannibal and BA and all this stuff. Like there's, there's a lot of good uh, moments in there and, and a lot of extra comedy as well. So I think, I think the theatrical cut does kind of skimp on that to jump from action scene to action scene. But at the same time, there's, there's plenty uh, to work with there, I feel like, in addition to the villains. I feel like the villains of the movie, you know, uh, Patrick Wilson is great. Uh, he's just a super, you know, frat boy jerk, you know, whatever. He's just a different kind of villain, even at the end, when he's caught. He's just he's still really just full of himself, which is hilarious. CT, what are some of your favorite moments from the movie? Well, I, the tank scene is, is a classic. I think it's classic. It's just so absurd. It's so like 18 turned up to 11 where they have stolen a plane BA's like passed out Murdoch's going crazy the, they're being chased and now this tank is a plane is carrying tanks and so they know they're going to get blown up so they then drive the tank out of the plane and start using the tank as a means to slow their fall and I, I, I thought it was just crazy awesome I, I loved it 
Yeah. Unfortunately for me, like that's like that's the big climax, right? Like that's pretty intense. And so to try to top that, they they do a pretty good job at the end where they're doing basically a shell game. Shell you game, know, like yeah. guess where it is with an actual uh, shipping rig and crane. Like that's that's pretty entertaining. But I you just can't beat flying a tank. I mean that's uh. But I think once you see that, you're kind of all in. Um, I think the other strength of the movie as well is that the film is told from the A-team's point of view and not kind of the outsider character like Amy was in the first season or so, you know, and like, it feels like they were kind of like, Oh, you know, we're going to get you into the world through this other person. I like that. This is their story and you're learning, you know, you're seeing everything through their eyes. You know, you get, you know, BA has quite a bit of, you know, back and forth, you know, where he has his non-violent streak he goes into for a while. You get the explanation about the Mohawk and everything. I, I think there's just a lot of good building on what was there in the original series, but kind of pushing it a little bit farther, giving you a little bit more. There's a, there's a lot of subtle nods to the original series. Like, even there at the end when BA's, like, not wanting to be violent anymore, That that's a re- reference to the original series. Like, he doesn't want to kill anybody because they didn't kill anybody in the original series. Like that's oh, their I way see. of explaining why they don't <laughs> kill anybody. I'm like, that's beautiful. Like they, you didn't need to put that in, but they did because like they're trying to be faithful to the original show. Yeah. And I mean, the sad part is like, you don't really get participation from the original cast. I mean, George Popard had passed, passed away and Dwight Schultz and Dirk Benedict are in it, but not the theatrical version really. They, like, well, they've bear- got, yeah, they, yeah. The, those cameos are at the end of the movie or like post credits. Right. Yeah. And then in the extended version, they're worked back into the movie. Right, exactly. Oh. So, huh. yeah, but it, it, they're barely there. I mean, it's kind of sad. And Mr. T didn't want to participate, really. And then, But the greatest cameo for me was getting Gerald Mulraney, you know, one half of Simon and Simon, also <laughs> Major Dad, as the one of the villains, you know, as the turncoat general. Like, I thought he was great. He, I mean, he it brought a smile to my face getting, like, 80s TV icon in the mix, you know, of everything. So, yeah, I mean, it worked. Uh, so the other thing I thought was weird, though, is this is a 20th Century Fox production, right? Yep. Was it A-Team Universal? Like, it seems odd to me that Universal wouldn't have produced this film. Yeah, I, I don't guess... know how that all works. Like, if it's if it was, uh, like, Cannell Productions owned it, and then they could transfer that wherever. Because at one point, like, Top Cow, like, Top Cow Comics, like, they're somehow associated with this. Because at one point, they had the rights to the comic, and they were going to produce the film, and so their names are still on this. And I don't know what that tie-in is, but... And, and Ridley Scott's an executive producer. Yeah, yeah, I think both yeah. the Scotts, right? Wasn't it him and his brother, I think? Uh, is it the yeah. whole Scott-free thing or whatever? <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's really interesting just how it all came together. But there were, you know, we talked about merchandising for the show. There was a little bit of merchandising for this, and CT, I know you owed a couple action figures from the film. There was a, a set of the three and three quarter inch uh, figures with the van that you could get all the A-team plus Patrick Wilson's character. And then there were taller uh, Hannibal and B.A. like 12 inch figures. And I, I don't have those, but I have the three and three quarter inch set. I, I you know, the bottom line is I think it's a good movie. There's a, I think there's a fair amount of people that enjoy it if they see it. And I know the director, Joe Carnahan, has said he's like, yeah, look, Thanks for all the love for the film, but it just didn't make enough money, so it, there's never going to be a sequel. Like, this is what it comes down to, which is where we come in, right? 
uh, if it had been given a second chance, maybe if it had hit at a different time, been promoted a different way, was it too early? I almost feel like, you know, were we quite ready? It feels like right now is like peak 80s nostalgia boom, like in the last two or three years. And I feel like 2010 might have been just before that was really hitting hard. I don't know which, if you agree, CT or Jeff, but... Um, so the idea is if you brought it back now, if we gave it one more shot, what would we do with the A team? How do you, how do you excite moviegoers, get them there? So CT, why don't you give it to us? Tell us what you got. Okay. Well, uh, a couple things. One, uh, when I was on, when I was guest uh, on your show before a few months ago, I did, uh, we did Flash Gordon together. And I practically wrote a script. Uh, I did not do that this time, which maybe maybe you're all glad I didn't uh, go this. I didn't fall into the Flash the Flash Gordon well is what I called it in January. I didn't fall <laughs> into the A team well this time. So that's just I'm set, I'll set that up. So what I what I like about this is even though I I wish we'd had sequels since 2010, is we're actually coming up on the 10th anniversary of the movie in 2020. And the original series pilot and first season took place 10 years after the events of their origin. So, in fact, the uh, the original intro for the first season says 10 years ago, a crack commando unit, blah, 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 blah. And then it was subsequently changed to 1972. Da, 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 da. So 2020, we're, we're basically we're at the exact point. Like, it's like in my mind, they're actually waiting. The sequel can't be made until 2020. <laughs> All right. Um, so that, so that said, I think it's perfect. We'll, we'll set this, uh, here in a, in a year or so. Uh, also, uh, one other point about the, uh, 2010 movie is while I do generally like Alan Silvestri, he can't come back for the sequel. We got to find somebody who's going to use the music, the original mm. theme song, and not just kind of like as a one-off at the end, but like incorporate the theme throughout the movie. I don't get why he didn't, but whatever. Okay. So as I was thinking about this, as I mentioned, Hannibal is my favorite character. I love I love Hannibal, and I wanted to come up with uh, a challenge for him. And, and one of the things I love about Hannibal is I think he is a perfect character. And a lot of times you see that, that's sort of an opposite. Like you want to see a flawed character. Like that's where we can really get to know their humanity and who they are is when they're flawed. What I love about Hannibal is he's is he's perfect. And there's so many episodes where. Uh, they go through all this crazy stuff. And at the end, it's like, that was Hannibal's whole plan. That was his, mm-hmm. his whole plan was to get caught because that was the only way he could solve the problem. And so I just have this idea that he is the, the, this like perfect mastermind. And he even kind of says something to that effect in the first movie, you know, give me five minutes. I'm good. An hour. I'm great. Uh, six months. I'm, I'm unbeatable. And so I want to build on that, and, and so so, but I still want to give him a foe that could come up to him and be potentially someone who could take him down. So as I as I thought about it, I I said, who who is someone in cinematic history or or TV history or or what have you that would be potentially Hannibal's opposite? Uh, Hannibal being this guy who's so crazy, but he's on the good side of crazy. He's so crazy he can plan all this out. And I thought of the Heath Ledger Joker from The Dark Knight, where he plans all this stuff out, but he's like just on the other side of crazy, where he's on the on the bad side of it. So I wanted to come up with a basically a plot where it's Hannibal versus not actually Heath Ledger's Joker, obviously, but somebody who is that kind of character. So that's that's the direction I 
I went with it. Now, that said, I don't think I'm clever enough to write this script because what I really want is uh, is one of these things where you watch it once and then you're like, oh, I get it now. And then you watch it again with a whole new, fresh perspective. So we would we would open on narration 10 years ago. Da, da, da. You see all the clips, you get that recap out of the way. And then when that recap ends, we fade up on essentially what I would call the end of an episode. So they're in this small town and like the you know rural California and they're helping this small town out and uh, you know they're positioned throughout the town ready ready to leap into effect once the uh, motorcycle gang comes in to threaten everybody and so that motorcycle gang comes in and then BA crashes through a building with the armored tank they met out of I don't know farm equipment or something I and they they take these guys down uh, it's you know it's just that quick action that sets us up. And then off in the distance, they hear sirens, and they gotta they gotta get in the van and go. And they notice they're in town. Um, they all notice the this reporter who's been following them around. And so they get in, they go, drive off, and you can tell at this point there's some friction amongst the team. It's been ten years. They're um, they're tired of being on the run. Uh, well, at least at least uh, Face and Ba and Murdoch's crazy, but he's kind of tired of being on the run and not having a, a, a means to settle. And Hannibal's just kind of taking it all in stride. But at, this, at the same time, as, as the movie progresses, Hannibal is slowly acting more and more erratic and almost kind of driving a wedge in the team to sort of drive everybody apart. And it doesn't make sense why he's doing that. Um, in fact, he even says, I want that reporter who's been following us around, I, I, I want to meet with her. And they're all like, this is a horrible idea. We shouldn't do it, da, da, da. And he's now I want to do it. Oh, just as a side, the uh, the MPs that come in and follow them, it's Colonel Decker, who's played by Clancy Brown. I, I forgot to mention that Clancy Brown's in this movie. Um, so so then we uh, we cut to a group of mob bosses, and uh, one of them is holding a copy of the Los Angeles Courier Express, and it's got a story about the A Team published by Amy Allen on it, and they realize that these mob bosses have had smaller groups of theirs being picked off and taken down by the A-team and they'll recap they'll recap some of these things that have happened and they'll essentially be like they're describing episodes of the original series and uh, throughout this meeting you know they're, they're talking about all this stuff and in, in, during this meeting in walks Hunt Stockwell and he offers he's like I, I can take the A-team down and it turns out that Stockwell it, he was in the army as well young, a little bit younger and uh, he was kind of being primed to be the next Colonel Smith. Like years ago, he was like, oh, he's he's just as good as Colonel Smith. He's going to be the next guy. And things went awry for him. And he was eventually dishonorably discharged. And now he wants to show he's better than Hannibal. Uh, so uh, we cut back to the uh, A-team and they go through the whole process where Amy's trying to meet with them. And uh, they do finally meet with Amy, and Hannibal's like, "I, you could be a useful asset. I'm gonna tell our side of the story. They're going on a mission together, and this is uh, his way of sort of getting some information out into the public. And uh, things start as normal, but uh, because this information's out there, their whole plan falls apart, and uh, the team winds up kind of disbanding. And Stockwell then uses that point to make his move because the team is vulnerable, and he starts kind of capturing them one by one. He comes up against BA and he's able to take BA out. Uh, comes up against Face, takes him out. So we get each of them get their own little scene and uh, they all each individually 
uh, fail. He comes up against Hannibal at that point. Stockwell actually winds up seemingly dispatched easily, but it was all part of his plan to get captured. And so here we start having that whole idea of the dueling plan. So his, so Stockwell's plans go into effect. Uh, Hannibal is able to use this to parlay a, um, a means to reunite the team. And this is where it starts uh, getting very more nebulous. The uh, Stockwell has some more horrific thing he's wanting to do. Blow up Los Angeles, something like that. You know, some crazy, some crazy uh, over the top scheme. And the team has to reunite to uh, take out Stockwell. And as it all kind of comes together, you see that, yeah, Stockwell's a genius, 10 steps ahead of everyone. But Hannibal knew all this was coming. He knew that eventually they would draw the attention of Stockwell. He knew that this is the route Stockwell would go. He knew that the big-time mob bosses would hook up with him, and this was Hannibal's way of getting to the big-time mob bosses they couldn't get to before. And he knew that this would draw the team closer together and reunite them and uh, re-solidify their, their friendship. And so at the end, the team realizes that, that after all of this, oh, well, you know, we, we thought we didn't have freedom, but really because of what you do, because of your planning, you know, there's nothing really keeping us down. We can go out and do whatever we want. We have true freedom that we wouldn't have otherwise. And they drive off into the sunset. How about it? All right. Well, yeah, there's a lot going on there. So cool. All right, Jeff, how about you? Yeah, well, for me, and like one thing that CT definitely brought up is that, that I love about the A-Team is kind of like they have certain tropes that they always do almost every single episode. They got to do the montage building stuff with the theme playing. Hannibal's got to chew a cigar and say, I love when a plan comes together. There are certain things that, especially for fans, like they got to throw us a bone with all those sort of things like that. So for me, not only that and wanting to definitely include those, but as with our previous episodes, whenever we're dealing with a source material that I love, I always say you got to stick with the source material. So I would want to adapt one of my favorite episodes or one of the, the better episodes of the A-Team showdown. So basically the, the premise of the movie starts off with Jimmy John's Wild West show, which I guess doesn't happen a whole lot anymore, but nonetheless, uh, it's being sabotaged by the A-Team. And so, and her name was Amy. I can never remember. Amy, Tina. What was, what was their assistant's name? Amy. Who? It is Amy. Wasn't her assistant? They weren't. She wasn't their well, assistant. Per se. Right, but her like <laughs> liaison or whatever. Yeah, she yeah, was. Right, right, right. Okay. So yeah. So Amy gets wind of the fact that the A team appears to be like sabotaging this Wild West show. Starts to investigate it and finds out that that's not actually the A team. It's just someone impersonating the A team. So goes out to go and find the A-Team, which she thought had disbanded, to try and figure out what to do. So first goes to find Hannibal. Hannibal, as he is, is always undercover. So he's undercover as like a hairdresser or something like that. She convinces him that he needs to get the gang back together so that they can clear their name. So then they go off to go find Face. Face is a bartender like in the Bahamas somewhere where he can sleep with a different girl every night. So they convince Face that he needs to come back and like maybe an angry husband or ex-boyfriend or something like that comes after him and that convinces him that, oh, okay, I need to leave. Uh, B.A. Horse is working in a garage, fixing cars and doing stuff like that. And the fact that they have not recruited Murdoch, I could certainly see them saying that, no, 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 we don't need Murdoch. Trust me, we're not going to get him. Like, it's okay. Like, that's what they kind of convince him. But of course, then they do end up finding Murdoch. He's actually living on a South Pacific island where for some reason or another, the locals are worshiping him as a god. And um, But the A-team shows up and B.A. ruins all that for Murdoch. So then 
they all have to flee away from the the islanders so they show up to the wild west show and as they're about to approach they see that was it colonel lynch that was tasked with finding the a-team he's there and he's determined that like he came out of retirement for this one last chance to find the a-team so they need to be a little bit more covert about it so they all go into disguise to try and infiltrate this uh, Wild West shows. Uh, that's the only way they can help them out is from the inside. But of course, B.A. don't wear no disguises, so he has to just kind of be himself, but kind of in the background. Uh, so then they have, you know, like faces a clown and you've got Hannibal with a big mustache and stuff like that. And so they set up the whole thing while avoiding Lynch to try and flush out that fake A-team but they don't know where they are. So they have to wait. They set up like a trap for them and stuff like that. They finally get them showing up. They come go through a couple of different things, but finally they get them, they capture them. They find out and there would be kind of like a beat for seeing what the imposters look like and they don't look anything like them. And so like, you know, of course, B.A. takes offense by it. In the show originally, I guess they had no Murdoch, which Murdoch very much took offense to. Something along those lines, but then ultimately what will, what would happen is they find out that this fake A-team was actually contracted by this guy who turns out to be a drug lord. And his whole plan was, I'm going to blame the A-team to take down this thing. They'll be so afraid because of the, they've heard of this A-team before. They'll take that down. I'll be able to take it over and use it as in my drug smuggling. So then the A-team then has to like run away because the drug lord, you know, he's coming after them and stuff like that. And he's going to send all their goons to the Wild West place just to take it out the hard way and just kill everybody there and not leave no trace, et cetera, et cetera. So that's where we get a famous uh, A-team montage as they're building all of their traps because they don't, they had to leave everything behind because Lynch was there. So they don't have any of their weaponry or their guns or their even their van or anything so they have to convert all of these like stage items and these like fake pea shooters or, or whatever they're using in the wild west show to try and stop these drug lords which of course they do then they end up faking out lynch there at the end as well he feels like i finally caught the a-team and it turns out that it's the a-team imposters instead ripped from your television screens to the silver screen okay that's good so you're taking it back Full inspiration. That that was the one thing I liked about the opening of the movie is it very, you know, it had kind of the Mexican setting, just like the pilot episode. Mm. So that was kind of fun. So I should say part of my plot comes from the second season episode, Deadly Maneuvers. The whole idea of the crime lord so fed up with the A-team ruining their business that they wind up hiring somebody. Uh-huh. That comes from an uh, A-team episode. Oh, okay. So, like I said, I watched the movie three times. I feel like I got the rhythm of the movie universe. You know, you gotta have, there's gotta be a personal edge in it for the A-Team. You gotta have a lot of comedy, and you gotta have a couple giant action set pieces. And so, here I give you A-Team 2, Burn. So, in flashback, we see a young Hannibal operating as a two-man black ops unit with a highly trained partner named Ronnie Chase. But during one mission in Argentina, a terrorist group called Firestarter strapped a bomb to Ronnie and set him up as a hostage to be rescued. Spotting the deception, Hannibal seemingly left Ronnie for dead as the flashback ends in a bang. 
In present day, the team is starting to get a little antsy with their renegade lifestyle, and Hannibal is struggling to keep the team from going AWOL. Hmm, sounds familiar. Alright. Having been on the run for five years, Face claims he just wants to settle down with a beautiful woman. B.A. surprisingly wants to own a cattle ranch in Montana, and Murdoch dreams of being the opening act for Celine Dion in Vegas, using the magic skills he's been working on in their spare time that is driving the rest of the team bonkers. Hannibal reveals that he has no one to get back to, that they are his family, but he promises that they will have their dreams someday and be cleared. He just needs more time. The internal strife is cut short, however, as the team kicks off their current mission, rescuing a wealthy American philanthropist who was aiding the poor of Russia and is now being held hostage by a team of heavily armed ex-KGB operatives who make a living through ransom money from kidnapped tourists. The A-team infiltrates St. Basil's Cathedral, where the American is being held with face posing as a blind priest to distract the bad guys, while Hannibal places explosive charges around the outside of one of the iconic spires. Hannibal jumps in the window to attack the kidnappers, while Face secures the hostage. Just as Murdoch flies in on a borrowed Russian helicopter singing Russian opera and loops a massive chain around the spire so that when Hannibal sets off the charges, the entire spire comes free of the cathedral and is carried upside down by the helicopter across the red square like a bucket as the fighting continues within. But Murdoch did not account for the weight of the spire so the tip begins dragging on the ground and breaking apart with bad guys spilling out while our heroes hang on for dear life. Finally, B.A. arrives on a horse-drawn sleigh to give the team a ride, explaining that horses handle better in the snow. As Hannibal, Face, and the rescued hostage fall into the carriage, last to arrive is Murdoch, who exits the overworked helicopter at the last minute and lands on one of the horses, just before what's left of the spire of the helicopter crash into the Makba Moskva River. Arriving back in the U.S. after their mission, the team is captured by a woman named Sarah Hauser, played by Amy Adams, and her group of CIA operatives, who boast of having tracked the team over the last 12 months as they completed various missions for hire to make ends meet. She claims to have taken an interest after catching security footage of Face infiltrating a sweat house operation hidden within a youth center where they rescued child laborers. Sarah says she cannot clear their names, but agrees to look the other way and let them continue if Hannibal and the team will complete a mission that the CIA cannot because it would create an international incident. The A-Team is tasked with recovering a prototype laser weapon which can target and kill up to 100 targets simultaneously, which was being field tested by the government when it was stolen three months earlier by a black arms dealer and it is now going to be purchased by a re-emerging fire starter terrorist organization during a ventriloquist artist's convention in Las Vegas. Murdoch is game, but Face and B.A. are against the mission, stating that it's too far outside their normal M.O., which leaves the team open to failure. With Firestarter involved, Hannibal takes it as a personal vendetta and forcefully demands that the team accept the mission, which they begrudgingly do. Planning the infiltration while Murdoch builds a snooty-looking dummy named Monsieur Merlot, the team takes their post at the designated convention center showroom, only to find themselves abducted and thrown into another room where all the exits are sealed. Once they get familiar with the space, all the team finds within is a single walkie-talkie. The voice on the other end is Sarah, who reveals herself to be the daughter of Hannibal's fallen comrade, Ronnie. 
She claims to have only joined the CIA to have access to the resources with which to track the A-Team and get vengeance for her father's death, exposing Hannibal's part in Ronnie's fate. The team show full distrust now in their leader, assuming it was just a matter of time before he turned on them. Sarah offers to let the rest of the team leave if they abandon Hannibal. Disgusted, they do just that, and Hannibal is left alone as Sarah enters the room. She appears ready to take her revenge out in blood, but then changes her tone, thanking Hannibal for allowing her father to die, since it set in motion her eventual rise to becoming the head of Firestarter. Hannibal explains that he knew Ronnie's mind had been poisoned, and that he had become a Firestarter operative, which is why he allowed him to take his own life on that last mission, and spent years after helping to dismantle the group's operation before forming the A-Team. Sarah reveals that she had been waiting for the A-Team's bond to weaken, because all she wanted out of the capture was Hannibal's planning skills for the conflict to come, then offers him a place in the Firestarter organization to get revenge on the government that betrayed him, a chance to burn the country to the ground and start anew. Hannibal admits he was treated unfairly, but never lost faith in the ideals of freedom. It's a pity that Sarah's worked so hard to resurrect a lost cause. Sarah shows Hannibal that her team is already set up undercover as security for a United Nations summit set to take place in 24 hours where the laser weapon will be put to use. It will strategically take out world leaders with the greatest military armaments. And since the device is American, it will frame the U.S. government for the action, causing these nations to launch violent strikes, which will decimate the country, leaving it open for new leadership under Firestarter. We cut outside to find the defecting A-team members seemingly going their separate ways in different vehicles, but actually listening in on earpieces that are receiving transmissions from a mic hidden in a cigar in Hannibal's pocket. Did you really think they could be broken apart so easily? Each have reactions of disbelief, then determination, calling each other on radios from their vehicles to coordinate the rescue of their friend. Sarah then leaves Hannibal, giving him 30 minutes to change his mind about joining Firestarter before he will be killed by a hulking guard who looks ready to inflict pain. The trio soon realize that they were not actually given the clean break promised by Sarah, as Face, Murdoch, and B.A. each have a tale to lose, a Firestarter operative that is looking to take them out. So before they can get back to Hannibal, they each take crazy drives in different directions. That part I haven't worked out. But, you know, stunts, uh, you know, for the, for the Fast and Furious fans. They do ultimately find Hannibal, get him out of there, and the team ends up at the United Nations with minutes to spare, having figured out the targets programmed into the laser during a side mission where they intercepted Sarah in a Firestarter aircraft after having called Carissa Sosa to pull some strings for them and get a plane, blah, blah, blah. You know, there's more action in the middle. The major action set piece for the climax involves the team bungee jumping from the ceiling to grab each world leader before the targeting laser blasts them. All the while, Firestarter soldiers are arriving to intercept our heroes from above. The A-Team is successful at saving the world leaders, but then are surrounded by Firestarter forces while they try to escape. The plan was to dress up in U.S. military uniforms and make their way out. Sarah ultimately dies in a fiery explosion on top of the roof after actual U.S. military surrounds both Firestarter and the A-Team, but she busts out her grenade. The explosion provides enough distraction for our team to get away by finishing their change into military garb and exiting the scene in a military Hummer with B.A. explaining he's going to have fun giving it a new paint job. So there you have it. The A-Team 2. Burn.
<laughs> so a few shades of CT's pitch there. We as did. Well, we but... went. We had there was some similarities. All right, gentlemen. So where do we fall on our votes? CT. I, as, as I was saying, man, I wish I wish at this point we'd had so many sequels. So I don't I don't see why we couldn't take all of them and make them all just do like a team two, three, and four, right? I mean, is that not an option? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not generally how things run here, but I think I, I okay. If I have to pick, if I have to pick one, I guess I'm probably gonna go. I do appreciate Jeff's going with like, hey, let's go with an original episode. I I think there's a lot of stuff though there in Adams, and especially if I'm, you know, there's like the crossover. We had some crossover ideas. I I guess I'll ultimately go with the Adams. All right, Jeff. Yeah, I think I'd lean towards yours as well, Adam. I feel like the especially the the. The starting off with the backstory with uh, uh, Hannibal, because uh, ultimately, well, I, I, I feel like especially for both of you guys, you usually you, you very much had Hannibal as kind of that central focal figure, which I think works really well. But I like, yeah, kind of that like backstory he kind of has to get over, I think works well with me. So. All right. Well, I mean, I, I could just pull a Jeremy because at this point, you know, two of the three, mm-hmm. it's unanimous. Uh, so I don't have, I don't need to tell you who I would vote for. <laughs> everybody's a pull winner. They're great. But yeah, so let, let's get into that then. Is there something within there that you feel is not clear? Is there something that you feel needs to be expanded upon in, in my pitch? So did Hannibal not know going into it? That, this, that there was a setup, like you said, he was wanting wanting to take on the mission. Do you think he knew he knew yeah. where it was all going? Well, in my mind, yeah, because she says they've been tracking them for twelve months. Um, my thought was that Hannibal figured it out along the way yeah, that okay. they were being watched. So he kind of set up and helped to get the guys on board with making it seem like they were discontent. So as long as he yeah. was completely in control and always knew what was going to happen and not taken <laughs> off guard. <laughs> right. That's how I figured it always works. But there's always there's the back and forths, right? There's always the switcheroos. Right. There's a lot of that in the movie. Right. And then where I miss, I miss where where's the uh, is there a building montage where they make things out of other things? Well, that was supposed to be basically before they go to the ventriloquist convention, mm-hmm. <laughs> the mission that they supposedly thought they were taking on. That was going to be the montage where like everybody else is building different you know equipment and weapons that they're placing. You know they're they're going to be ready to go and. You know, Hannibal, Face, and B.A. are in position in different parts of the building, but then they get captured and pulled into that room. But Murdoch was the one who, while they're building equipment, he's building a ventriloquist dummy. So that's his, like, part of the montage. Which so is was totally a nice. Murdoch thing. It is, yeah. very much so. <laughs> yeah, I thought he, he would have a lot of fun with that. So, yeah, so that that's where that would be. So, yeah, but Jeff, thanks for calling that out because that's mm, important. It's important <laughs> to me, yeah. What about as far as, like, the Firestarter organization did that plan seem too outlandish? That was my only thought, because I feel like the A-Team a lot of times seems to deal with smaller missions, you know, that like things that are important, but it's not like destruction of a country. Yeah. Type That's thing. the hard thing about a movie. With a TV show, it's, you know, yeah, it's the it's the guy shaking people down for protection money. Well, and then the next week is the guy shaking people down for protection money, and then the next week is the guy shaking. You know, it's it's, it's uh it's pretty much the same you know level of street crime. But then when you when you go to a movie, it's like that. Does that work? Like you gotta kind of amp it up. So 
there is that like obvious like okay we have to have some sort of big government thing laser you know james bond the thing up i guess yeah so so i think it's a hard line to follow i feel like they did a pretty good job in the first movie with that where it wasn't too crazy i mean there's still a level but it was also the origin story it was the first movie wasn't really your typical a-team story Mm. exactly yeah because because that was that was kind of where i was falling into i was like because you know they it was basically it really was them trying to figure out a way to clear their names by stopping the counterfeit money operation and all that but even the counterfeit money operation they say well i could destroy an economy or whatever but but it doesn't feel like life-threatening immediately you know that you would see so this one's a little more intense. The other question that I had for you know for you guys because I wasn't sure like how it was going to be taken, but do you like the idea of a female villain? I mean, because we had like Sosa, you know, Jessica Biel was kind of the antagonist, but she wasn't really a villain. She was still a good guy, you know, but she was sort of causing problems for them along the way. Uh, but in this way, it's kind of all all in on a female bad guy. Is, does that work for you? Yeah, and I think we've seen that kind of character like was it the second kingsman julianne moore was sort of the female villain in that and mm. I feel like we've seen that more like the female villain uh was it ba- actually baywatch of all things right did Baywatch have a female <laughs> villain i was just trying i was trying to remember i saw that it was actually much more hilarious than people it gave it credit not, for it was, it was yeah good. it was not horrible <laughs> it was not the worst thing i've seen <laughs> yeah <laughs> But you're no, I think you're right though. Yeah, she she was like the mastermind behind it. Now I remember. Yes. So yeah, hey, take a page for Baywatch. Why not? They they set the groundwork for <laughs> That's us. That's what you were doing. Right. You were totally still exactly. From Why not? I'm changing my vote now. You still from Baywatch? <laughs> <laughs> so what do you think uh, as far as casting then? Do you like the idea of Amy Adams finally having a good villainous turn? Has she had one and I just missed it? I feel like she's at that place in her career where she needs to diversify a little bit. Like, show us you can be evil. You know, like, still do all the, the nicey-nice roles you do. But she Hasn't she, like, gotten to the point where she's not going to take... I mean, I guess she was still in Man of Steel and everything, wasn't she? Yeah, she's in all the DC movies. Yeah, because yeah. I was thinking after doing, like, Arrival and stuff like that, that she's gotten to a certain point in her career. But that's what I think. I think she's at the point where she's she would almost want to say, hey, you know what? Let me have a little fun here. And I, I, that's what I'm saying. I don't feel like she's gotten to and she probably wouldn't chew the scenery, but she hasn't really gotten to dig deep into a, a devious persona mm. too often. So I feel like just to show a different side. But could you guys think of someone else, another actress that you think would fit well in that role? I don't know. I mean, like, you know, Amy Adams, because I feel like it, it is good to have a villain, a recognizable villain. So, yeah, Amy Adams definitely has that part. I mean, if you want to go like someone who's done like the military things of, isn't Jessica Chastain, isn't she like kind of in all those, that style of film? What was that, that military one she did? I'm just trying, I'm blanking on it right now. Was she the Hurt Locker or was she in? Zero Dark Thirty. Zero Dark Thirty. That's what it was. Yeah. yeah. You could, uh, you know, this, you also have to think like it's the A team. So what, like, I was thinking like Sandra Bullock or Charlize Theron or somebody like somebody at that level, or even Julianne Moore, yeah. who I just mentioned. Like those, those are some actresses who could uh, really do a good job at being a villain. But then, are they going to join the A team? I don't, I don't know. Right. <laughs> well, and that's that thing too, where it's like it's almost that because I would feel like Amy Adams, you kind of have the unexpected side. 
where I don't think the audience... So, like, maybe you would even play that up, where it's like you start off where you don't think she's the villain. Right. Uh, and then you know, it turns out that she is. And... Well, that's how it is, right? There's the right. back and forth. First, she comes home, she's like, look, I'm just doing my job, but I'll let you go if you help us out, you know? Right. So she seems like she's on their side, and then the switcheroo, and then another switcheroo. I just feel like she gets to, she just keeps going different levels of, of evil. Right. So I, I think, like, you're right. She she would be a good choice because she could upset the expectation there. People wouldn't quite know. But also, I feel like the trailers have to play up like the disintegration of the a team like that's what you would think mm, this movie is true. about and so and so there, there would be some element of that at least in the teaser trailer maybe to start you know it's a little bait and switch on you there too you're like oh no mm. it's a breakup movie no not that everybody's super committed to these this <laughs> core group you know second outing but still so yeah, you know, I talk about the fact that it's been ten years since the first movie, or nine, ten years since the first movie. Did you, did you either of you have that sort of in mind, like the fact that there have been so, so much time since the first movie? Does that play a role? I guess Adam, you kind of talk about how they've been on the run for so long, but like, was that more of a factor? Yeah, I think it's the same thing you were saying. Is yeah, it's, it's been ten years, so they're really right. getting tired of it because it's like we're not getting any closer, mm. and they're saying that. But at the same time, I feel like it, I would almost want to play it like that was planned for Hannibal. Like you know, got them all to start complaining more. So we're buying it as an audience, but maybe by the end we find out they've just that's like kind of a resolution. Is they've just accepted it at this point? Yeah. They're like, look, it's been this long. This is our life now, and we're doing good. So, what more do we need? You mm. know. Well, yeah, I was sort of ending with that idea too. It's like we're actually better off this way. We're better because mm-hmm. we don't have nothing. We don't have anything tying us down. We don't. Have, we don't have the usual trappings of society. We're actually out there helping people more than we would be if our names had been cleared. And the only thing I was going to say is, you know, I had that area where, or, you know, the section where Hannibal has that big guard. You know, that's. It's supposedly going to kill him if he doesn't agree to join before they break him out. And I was thinking, I wonder if we could get Mr. T for the fight. You know, he didn't like the first one. This time around, we'll give him that cameo. You know, mm. maybe we could do something with that. I don't know, but uh, you know, because we got the other guys in the last film, maybe he would finally agree for this one. Just only if he can dance. He has to dance. <laughs> well that's during the credits they should have just a dance party montage should, yeah, to like dance the dancing with the stars dance actually that would just be good if like at some point like they're maybe in a hotel room or something regrouping and they just flip it on and they see that they're like what are we looking at <laughs> <laughs> yeah so and i i think unless jeff you feel that the problem with the film was the writer director um, I feel like Joe Carnahan was a good fit for this. I think he got the tone, at least in my opinion, pretty well. Like it was balanced with the comedy and the action uh, and, and you were on board with them. Uh, do you want to bring him back or would you want to suggest somebody else? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I feel like the the one thing that is a step in the right direction is, yeah, the, like, again, the A-team is definitely a, 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 a thing of tropes and so throwing a good number of tropes in there is 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 what the a team is all about that certainly helps 
Yeah. Now, one thing I think is just as we close here, I think it's important that for the marketing, they got to have, maybe this could go in with the, the dancing. Maybe Mr. T could just help promote by showing his dance skills. <laughs> yeah. One of the famous phrases, and Hannibal's got the, in the book, it says Hannibal's got the jazz, mm-hmm. but don't, it, don't they use it, CT, in a different phrasing? They use it throughout uh, primarily the first season, but they, it comes up the, the second season too, that Hannibal's on the jazz. On the jazz on yeah the jazz. in the book it says got the jazz so that's why I, I was i know but on the jazz is the more popular phrasing so i feel like that has got to be the hashtag on the jazz and that like and there's got to be some campaign around that you know <laughs> so that's that's what's you know set the world on fire is on the jazz and people are interpreting it different ways you know but then you i don't, I don't know what it would be if it's like people submitting different interpretations of the original theme or something you know but and everybody doing dance moves to their uh remix you know they're on the jazz so just something along those lines yeah yeah you got the social media campaign worked out that's that's yeah far we're way far (laughs) gotta get deep gotta get deep these days well ct want to thank you so much for joining us Mm um very cool and you know it's it's important that we we give all films a second chance even those ones that have kind of just dissipated this isn't i don't think this was ever considered a bad movie but at the same time it wasn't a, a super popular movie and maybe we've given it a chance to be rediscovered we've opened the door once again yeah i don't know maybe uh, maybe enough people will find it in that walmart discount bins that the sales will <laughs> spike <laughs> And, uh, man, it'll take off now. <laughs> uh, I went digging for it in the Walmart bins, did not find it. I had to use my Amazon bucks to buy a used well, copy yeah, well, of my Amazon like rewards. Five bucks at the most? Yeah, $5. <laughs> <laughs> well, CT, why don't you tell people where they can find you these days? All right. You can, uh, you can find really anything you need to know about me at nerdlunch.net. Uh, there is um, all the information about the Nerd Lunch podcast. We have on our feed now uh, the Nerd Lunch podcast. Uh, Nerd Lunch presents Down the Rabbit Hole, and Nerd Lunch presents the Chap Report. So each of those shows uh, are mon- – uh, well, Nerd Lunch is twice monthly, and the other two shows are, are monthly. There's also a, a fifth week. If there's a fifth Tuesday in the week, we've got uh, Nerd Lunch presents Fourth Chair Army Invasion, uh, which is uh, our Fourth Chair Army members taking over the show. So you can hear all the podcasts there. I have done articles, blogs, old blogs, new blogs. You can check out stuff about when I went to New York City this past summer. There you can find stuff that I sell. So I think I think last time I was talking about a King Thunder shirt from Quantum Leap. Uh, that is officially available through the Redbubble store. You can link to that. That's linked to from my site. I also have a Nerd Lunch University shirt, which Adam, did you actually pull the trigger on that? It's going to be in the mailbox tomorrow, and I'll just mention, if you're not sick of my voice, I am very excited to be returning myself to the Nerd Lunch podcast. I am a proud alumni of Nerd Lunch University, so uh, keep an eye out for the 50 Cent Teen Titans episode. That's right. It's going to be very exciting. That's uh, Yeah, I don't know how that will drop in relation to this episode, so look for Adam on our site. There's a fourth chair army a table and everything you can look for all two of his appearances on Nerd yeah. <laughs> crossing my fingers for a third somewhere <laughs> we'll try we'll try right. uh yeah all of it's there and you can if you want to follow me on twitter or instagram it's at nerd lunch 
All right. Well, thank you, Jeff. Anything you want to plug? I am not available <laughs> anywhere else online. Sorry. <laughs> Find him here exclusively, exclusively. on Exclusive. the Sequel Quest podcast. All right. Well, until next time, shut up, Murdoch. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you enjoyed this episode of Sequel Quest and invite you to join us next week for another discussion about a film that never was. Share your ideas with the Sequel Quest universe by visiting sequelquestpod.com, following us on Twitter at SQPod, on Facebook by searching Sequel Quest, or sending an email to sequelquestpod at gmail.com. Let the world know how much you enjoy the show by leaving a review and five-star rating on iTunes. All films and characters discussed on Sequel Quest are the property of their respective studios and license holders. No copyright infringement is intended. Beautiful, beautiful. Shut up, Murdoch. <laughs> I actually thought I never like I didn't know that, you know, I love I love it when a plan comes together was his catchphrase. For me, did didn't he also say like beautiful, beautiful while puffing on a cigar? Wasn't that also a Hannibal thing? He would say that quite a bit, yeah. Yeah, like that was the catchphrase for me. That's what I always thought was a Hannibalism. His, so. his big grin as he was uh puffing on a cigar. Uh, I love Hannibal so much. <laughs>